Matthew chapter 18, beginning in verse 1. It says, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Then Jesus called a little child to him, set him in the midst of them and said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as, a little, as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depths of the sea. In the first 10 chapters of Matthew's gospel, Jesus is revealed as the king. He is no ordinary king. His kingdom is no ordinary kingdom. In chapters 11 through 13, we looked at the people's rebellion against the king. Chapters 14 through 20 traces the retreat of the king as Jesus pulls away and gives his disciples an intense period of personal training and instruction. In chapter 17, Jesus introduced the disciples to a series of subjects in light of that rejection. Instructions about faith in chapter 17, verses 14 through 21. Instructions about his death in chapter 17, verses 22 through 23. Instructions about citizenship in chapter 17, verses 24 through 27. Until and now, he's going to give instructions about humility in verses 1 through 5. And about offense in verse 6. Later in the chapter, he's going to deal with the issues of forgiveness in verses 21 through 35. Divorce in chapter 19, verses 1 through 15. Wealth, chapter 19, verses 16 through chapter 20, all the way to, to verse 16. You know, Pastor Chuck Smith was fond of saying, to live above with saints we love will certainly be glory to live below with saints we know. That's a different story. I love that because heaven is our future. But what about now? How will we live with each other now? How will we bear fallen people in a fallen world? Years ago, there was a popular TV series called Seinfeld. And in the final episode of that long-running series, there was a revelation that everyone in the audience already knew. That the main characters on the show were self-absorbed, were for the most part conceited, sometimes cruel, often petty, even perverse, and very funny. Fallen people know about truth, but they'll often sink into a sea of lies. They know about humility, 
but they reward themselves on the basis of pride. They know about the concept of forgiveness, but they rarely exercise it, and then only under unusual circumstances. In chapter 18, Jesus is going to deal with kingdom life in the here and the now with the saints we know. And it's interesting, in the here and the now, we often annoy each other and offend each other. And rub each other the wrong way. Yet Jesus calls us to live as people of God. And in this thing that we call the community of God. That we call the church of God. We understand that we must live in community as families. We must live in community at work, in business, or schools. Years ago, Rodney King, that Reluctant philosopher asked the painful, almost prophetic question in light of our culture. How in the world, why in the world can't we just all get along? And the answer in part is because we're not really that good after all. We're not really that kind after all. In fact, the Bible makes a powerful argument that we're sinners by nature and by choice and that for the most part, we really are self-absorbed and self-consumed and selfish. No wonder America loves Seinfeld. We love greatness. We love great athletes. We love great accomplishments. We love great works of art. And the word great generally conjures images of great buildings, great powers, great wealth, great influence, great position. But in God's kingdom, greatness is something entirely different. Greatness in the kingdom isn't power but love it's not influence but service it's not status or position but a person's ability to judge himself or herself in light of what God has to say about them in the topsy-turvy world of the kingdom of God, the first are last, the least are greatest, the rich are poor, the poor are rich. Christians, in order to fit into this kingdom, Jesus invites us to learn the lessons of honesty and humility and forgiveness because we know, we know that in the real world in which we live, Christians sometimes hurt each other and sin against each other. And so we have to learn how to undo the damage that we do to one another. We have to develop our character for heaven. And in part, that's done by humbling ourselves in the here and now. It's humility and then service. In the kingdom of heaven, we tell the truth to each other in love. We forgive each other. We're reconciled to each other. And so, in Matthew chapter 18, verse 1, when it says, At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? 
I want to draw your attention to the fact that the Lord Jesus might have had many things on his mind right at that particular moment. Remember, he's already revealed to them about the reality that he's going to Jerusalem, that he's going to be arrested, that he is going to be tortured, imprisoned, crucified, and come back to life. You can imagine he's thinking about a lot of different things. And while the, the thoughts that Jesus may have had on his mind was his upcoming passion, the thoughts of the disciples were on themselves. Again, just like in real life. We come to church and we enter into relationships and we have our life in front of us and we ask and we answer the question, not what is Jesus thinking about the situation, but what are, what's going through our mind? What's going through our circumstances? In Luke's parallel account in chapter 9, verse 46, we read, Then a dispute arose among them as to which would be the greatest. They argued about position and power and influence and reputation. You might be thinking, well, I'm wondering as they're all gathering together that Peter might have said, didn't you just read the last uh, section that we just went through? I just caught the miracle. I, I just caught miracle money in order to pay taxes. Jesus gave me the king keys to the kingdom. I witnessed the raising of Jairus' daughter. I walked on water <clears throat> briefly. I witnessed the transfiguration. If we're going to have an election about who's greatest, you should probably pick me. And I can hear James and John arguing over who's the greatest. Muhammad Ali once said, I'm the greatest. I, oh, look at my pretty face. I'm so great. I am so great. I can't be beat. The only way I can be licked is if they put my picture on a postage stamp. <laughs> and then they put his picture on a postage stamp so that millions of people licked him. In Mark's gospel, chapter 9, verse 33, it says that Jesus asked them, Hey, what are you arguing about on the road? And Mark's gospel says, but they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who would be greatest. The implication being they were ashamed. Have you ever been involved in some petty affair and then Jesus catches you red-handed? Face to face with Jesus, you're talking about something, you're saying something, you're doing something, and you're too ashamed to tell Jesus the truth. We're too ashamed to admit our jealousy and our posturing for power. The disciples still failed to see the truth about the king and the kingdom. And Jesus has revealed the truth about his identity and his mission and his destiny. But it seems that, that they still don't get it. They're still addicted to power and position. And after arguing, they finally go to Jesus to settle the dispute. And Jesus is going to tell them who's the greatest. 
And you would think that Jesus would say, you know what? You're all a bunch of hypocritical babies. You're proud, you're arrogant, you're ignorant, you're selfish, you're rude, you're conceited, you're completely carnal and captivated by the world. But Jesus, Jesus doesn't do that because Jesus is gentle and Jesus is gracious and Jesus is generous and Jesus is patient. In the church, we still ask that question, who's the greatest? Only we say, well, which church is the greatest? Which is the most doctrinally sound? Which Bible teacher best reflects my own ideas? We want great teachers and great ministries and global outreach and great impact. We want sound churches and sound Bible teachers. But we also want the perception of greatness. We want to sit in the seat of honor. We want to attend power lunches. We want to influence the rich and the famous. And and we want to reach the lost, but not always for the right reason. It isn't because necessarily that we love them and care about them and our hearts hurt for them. We want to reach them because it will improve our image. People still define effective ministry in terms of power. They'll even use the terms power ministry, power evangelism, greatest influence. We want the fastest growing church. We want the biggest radio and television and internet presence. We measure ministry in terms of sheer volume. And can we have doctrinal purity? and love, and compassion, and humility, all at the same time. And I think that the truth is that we can. We might ask the question, why is there so much disunity? Why is there so much division, dissatisfaction, problems, sects, schisms? And I believe that part of our problem, again, is self-exaltation and pride. We think too highly of ourselves. We exaggerate and inflate who we are. It was pride that basically transformed Lucifer, the angel, into Satan, the devil, It was pride that caused Adam and Eve to taste the forbidden fruit. It was pride that attempts to satisfy ourselves apart from God's revelation in Christ. There is this struggle for greatness. I found a note. The note read, how you can be perfectly miserable. This is what it says. Number one, think about yourself. I'm going to add all the time. Number two, talk about yourself. Number three, use the personal pronoun I as often as possible. Number four, mirror yourself continually in the opinion of others. Number five, listen greedily to what people say about you. I made a note. Check Facebook often. Number six, insist on consideration and respect. Number seven, demand agreement with your views on everything. 
Number eight, sulk if people aren't grateful for what you've done for them. Number nine, never forget a favor you did for someone else. Number 10, expect to be appreciated. Number 11, be suspicious. Number 12, be sensitive to slights. Number 13, be jealous and envious. Number 14, never forget a criticism. Number 15, don't trust anyone but yourself. It is a recipe for misery. There was a rabbi and a New England minister who were getting to know each other and proudly the minister said, One of my ancestors signed the Declaration of Independence. And the rabbi said, I understand your pride. One of my ancestors signed the Ten Commandments. (laughs) There's always this contest going on. And contrast that with what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, therefore if there's any consolation in Christ, if there's any comfort of love, if there's any fellowship in the Spirit, if there's any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being in one accord, having one mind. Think about it. You were saved. Not to live for yourself. Not to preoccupy yourself. Not to live for yourself and think about yourself all the time. One Bible writer says, quote, When Christians are living for themselves and not for others, there's bound to be conflict and division, unquote. He's exactly right. Personality promotion leads to a pecking order of the haves and the have-nots in ministry. We're constantly challenged to be number one and win. And don't misunderstand, the Bible, the Bible, the Bible insists that we put forth our best effort, that we do our very best. We aren't supposed to be slackers or lazy. Don't misunderstand me. Christians are supposed to be diligent. Paul was diligent in Philippians chapter 3 verses 12 through 14. He says, quote, not that I've already attained or am already perfected, but I press on so that I can lay hold for that which Christ Jesus also laid hold of me. Brethren, I don't count myself as having apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting the things that are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, unquote. If being number one and winning means being served or the desire to be served, then that's sub-Christian. That's, that's wanting something less. And so 
we find the recipe for greatness in verses 2 through 5. Look what it says in verses 2 and 3. Then Jesus calls a little child to him to set him in the midst of them and says, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as a little child, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. And you've got to understand how shocking, how surprising, how overwhelming and intimidating Jesus' answer is. Because when he says to them, who will be the greatest? in the kingdom of heaven. Do you know what? It's elementary school. It's junior high school. The, the, the apostles are standing there and they're thinking, pick me. Pick me. Who's he going to pick? Peter, James, and John are standing towards the front because that seems to be the choice that they invariably make. Pick me, pick me. Each and every one of them are thinking, pick me. And imagine their surprise when Jesus picks a little child. Do you remember when you were divvying up to play soccer or football or baseball and there was this team and there was that team and I'm almost certain that they're in Capernaum in Peter's house and that Peter's got kids and whoever the smallest kid in the room was, Jesus goes to that little child and he picks the little child. We're not told if the child was male or female. We don't know the child's name and we don't even know the child's age. Jesus uses the child as a living, breathing, visual aid. And Jesus spoke the Aramaic language. In the Aramaic language, the word child and servant are identical. The only way you're able to differentiate the two is the context in which it's being spoken. And I believe that Jesus is using the child in at least two ways. Number one, as an example of humility. And number two, as a picture of conversion or transformation or being born again. The Lord literally points to the child about the reality of goodness rather than the degree of greatness when Jesus says in verse 3 unless you're converted or literally he says unless you turn around unless you turn about unless you go in a different direction Jesus is in effect saying he's telling the disciples you're not even walking in the right direction you're walking in the wrong direction you're not walking towards the kingdom you're walking away from the kingdom You're on the wrong road. You're going in the wrong direction. In order to turn around, in order to go in the right direction, you have to renounce your wicked and selfish ideas about personal greatness. This is the very essence of repentance. And the Greek verb is in what we call the active voice. Implying a definite action. It's a change in relation to God evoked by a new perception. And the new perception brings a new requirement where all of a sudden Jesus basically says, Stop! You're going the wrong way. 
I need you to turn around and I need you to go in a different direction. In order to turn to God, you have to turn away from sin. You have to turn away from the pride. You have to turn away from the foolishness. You have to turn away from the selfishness. And this is something way, way greater than just simple penance. This isn't, this isn't lighting a candle. This isn't being sorry. This isn't just a simple expression of regret because you've done something wrong. The old catechisms say repentance whereby we forsake sin. This isn't just simply feeling bad about a mistake that you've made. This has to be a willingness to say, I have gotten it all wrong. There's an old children's rhyme that says, repentance is to leave the sins we loved before and show that we in earnest grieve by doing them no more. It's more than just recognizing a character fault or deficiency. So what does it mean? What does it mean to become a little child? It can't mean watching cartoons. This is not what he's talking about. He goes, oh, was Jesus asking me to get up on Saturday and watch cartoons or purchase my kindergarten lunch pail on eBay? He's not talking about childishness. It doesn't mean mental childishness or emotional regression. That's not what he's talking about. Jesus is speaking of the moral elements of childlike trust and faith and dependence. Children have a keen and a well-developed sense of conscience. Ask any two-year-old when you rebuke them or spank them and they throw themselves on the ground as if the world is coming to an end. They cry as if they understand who's running for president. (laughs) I did that the other day. Some child threw himself on the ground and started wailing like Jeremiah. And I turned to the parents and I said, he's just found out who's running and what their platform is. W.H. Griffith Thomas included the elements that children are teachable. They're eager to learn. A child wants to learn. A child, I'm going to suggest to you, on good days, really wants to be corrected and, and informed. The child doesn't want to know what's wrong. They want to know what's right. Children are teachable and children are trustful with a simplicity of faith that is attractive and appealing and children are tender. Their compassion runs deep. They're easily moved. So what does it mean to be a child? I think in this context it means teachable. It means trusting. It means tender. And you can't be great in God's kingdom if you can't even enter the kingdom. 
Greatness in the kingdom presupposes that you're headed into the kingdom and conversion is the door to God's kingdom in verse 3. Look what it says. Humility is the law in the kingdom in verse 4. Doing good to others is evidence of being in that kingdom in verse 5. Serving as the source of stumbling excludes us from the kingdom in verse 6. So in verse 4, when it says, therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. You can't be great in the kingdom if you don't even get into the kingdom. And in order to get into the kingdom, you have to be walking away from the road marked selfishness. And you have to take the path that's marked selflessness. Jesus is now ready to answer their question in verse 1. Who's the greatest in the kingdom? Apparently greatness in the kingdom in essence. If I were to boil it down to a singular word. It's the word humility. The constituent parts that make humility possible are Simplicity, which is the absence of anything doubtful and the presence of all things genuine. Sincerity, motives as clear and pure and fresh Colorado snow. And of course, sensitivity. A conscience always tender, in nature sympathetic to other people's plight. It's when you look at someone and you care about them. Humility of character generates humble service. And this is the point that Jesus is making, that humility in yourself results in service towards other. And note, Jesus associates humility with reception. Not rejection, with inclusion, not exclusion. So receiving such a child in Christ's name is equivalent to receiving him. In effect, we receive God's children like we receive real children. I'm going to emphasize this just for a moment. We receive God's children like we receive real children. Now, this is going to create a theological conundrum for you if you hate children. If you hate children in real life, I don't know what to say other than there's something wrong with you. There's something broken. And it has to be fixed. Because I need you to understand the point that Jesus is making. The point that he's making is that we're to have a simple, open affection. The point that he's making is how do you receive children? It, it's, it's more about what that means. It, it it, it, it may be more concerned about playing and less concerned about politics. You, you think about it, when you, read a ch- when you see a child, when you meet a child, do, do you go, hey, are, are you liberal or conservative? <laughs> see, you laugh because of the ridiculous and the absurdity of the statement. Can you imagine saying to a three-year-old, who are you voting for? Can you imagine saying to a four-year-old, 
Tell me if you're an Arminian or a Calvinist. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that we don't have theological discussions, but think about what Jesus is saying. Do you ask a child for its resume? Do you ask them where they work? Do you ask for a list of achievements? Do you insist that they, that they recite the Apostles' Creed or the Westminster Confession? Well, yeah. Do you quiz them about theological issues? You don't do that. What do you do with a child? In moments of simplicity and purity, you just simply love them because they're children. And I think that that's part of the point. Note, humility in action, true greatness, is going lower and lower Stooping, serving the least of these, Matthew 25, 40. Even Jesus comes not to serve or to be served, but rather to serve in Philippians chapter 2, verse 7. I read the story of a rich baker who sent 20 of the poorest children in town and, and called for them and said to them, in this basket you're going to find a loaf of bread for each and every one of you. Take one and come back every day and I'll give you more. Immediately the youth began quarreling about who was going to get the largest loaf. Snatching from the basket, some were pushing and shoving and pushing and shoving and trying to get the largest loaf that they could lay their hands on. And then they left without even thanking the baker and Gretchen, a poor dressed little girl, patiently waited till everyone was gone. And then she took the smallest loaf which was left in the basket and she kissed the baker's hand and then she went home. And the next day, the scene was repeated. And Gretchen took the last loaf and went home again. And when Gretchen's mom sliced the loaf, she found many silver coins inside of the bread. And Gretchen actually took the money back to the baker. And the baker said, no, no, my child, it's not a mistake. I put them in the smallest loaf on purpose. I did this specifically to reward you. And you see, that story reminds me of the fact that God is a special reward. There's a special reward for those who says, I'll take less so that you can have more. I'll do without so that you can have. You know, for many, ministry is how high can I go? And Jesus is saying, how low can you go? Jesus will later say in Matthew 20, you know how the Gentiles lord it over them and those who are great exercise authority over them, but it's not supposed to be that way among you. Whoever wants to be first, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man didn't come to serve, to be served, but rather to serve and give his life a ransom for many. You know, I read the story of a man who was voted most humble in his church. The church gave him a party and a button that said, I'm the most humble person in the church. And then they took it away from him because he refused to take it off. 
Humility is that one grace, it's that one virtue that seems to slip away once you think you have it. Someone wants to find humility as seeing yourself the way God sees you. And I think that that's a perfect definition. True humility is somehow to be able for a moment to comprehend how God sees you. Warren Wiersbe writes, true humility means knowing yourself, accepting yourself, and being yourself, your best self, to the glory of God. Unquote. It means avoiding extremes. Thinking less than you ought, like Moses did when God called him in Exodus chapter 3. Or thinking more than you ought to think, like in Romans chapter 12, verse 3. The truly humble person doesn't deny the gifts God has given him, but uses them for the glory of God. And then the consequences of sin. Look what it says in verse 6. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him. Read it for yourself. If a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depths of the sea, you should underline the word better. It would be better for him because if the thought of having a necktie in the form of a large stone is alarming, it should be. Receiving the child generates great reward. Rejecting and offending the child results in grave punishment. Parents, teachers, Christian workers pay close attention to our children. Love them. Protect them. Be kind to them. Later in the chapter, Jesus says in verse 10, take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones. In chapter 19, verse 14, Jesus will say, let the children come to me, don't forbid them, for such is the kingdom of heaven. Paul, writing in Ephesians 6, 4, will say, fathers, don't provoke your children to wrath. Colossians 3, 21, fathers, don't provoke your children, don't despise them. Don't forbid them. Don't provoke them. That means push them in such a way that you know that they're going to react in a way that's not going to honor God. And by the way, the word translated sin means to stumble or it means to offend. It means to throw off course. It means to put them and set them in the wrong direction. When I was doing the Western Conservative Summit, Michael Martin Murphy was one of the, was the people who were tasked to sing. And some of you know Michael Martin Murphy. He had that very famous song, Wildfire. She comes down the yellow mountain on a cold Nebraska night. For some of you, you know, on a pony she named Wildfire. You, you know it. Some of you know it. So I'm talking with Michael Martin Murphy, who's a singing cowboy. And I talked about growing up in Apple Valley, where Roy Rogers and Dale Evans lived. And Michael Martin Murphy says, I got to meet Roy Rogers. 
He said, you know what? I'm a singing cowboy. and Roy Rogers is a singing cowboy. And I had a chance to meet him. And I wanted some advice from the most famous singing cowboy in all the world. And I said, Roy, I'm a singing cowboy just like you. Do you have any advice for me? And Roy looked at me and he said, never send a young person down the wrong trail. And then he said to me, and get yourself a horse. Because even if people stop liking you, they'll love your horse. (laughs) He's exactly right. You don't send children down the wrong trail. Every teacher in America ought to have the scripture on their desk. Every school teacher should put this verse on their desk. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the sea. Every person knows that millstones were large, flat stones that were used to grind the grain. Italian people opt for cement shoes. Jesus goes with a stone necktie. Most Jews were deathly afraid of water and drowning. If you don't believe me, look at the, Olympic, the Jewish Olympic swimming team. The Jewish nation never had a large naval armada. Jews refused to execute people by drowning them because they were afraid of the water. And so when Jesus made this statement, it would have sent chills up the spine of everyone listening. It was Jesus' way of saying, I want you to imagine the most horrific death that you can envision for yourself. Because it would be better for you to experience that kind of death. Most parents are deeply grateful when people love their children and serve their children and help their children. And children should never be hurt, ever, in a church, or even at home, or at school. And if you want to know how God feels and thinks about people who give themselves permission to hurt children, mislead children, molest children. Read this verse. Read it over and over and over again. God is not apathetic or indifferent or unconcerned about people who threaten children hurt children, abuse children, kill children. We're given two great directions in relationship to the kingdom in this passage. The first is instructions on how to enter. You have to go in a different direction. And then instructions on how to advance. You have to turn away from yourself. And in humility, you have to turn towards others. You have to ask yourself this important question. What am I looking for? 
a position of advantage or a position of service? Am I looking for a way to go higher or am I looking for a way to go lower? Look at the door marked humility and take it. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor. In 1 Peter 5, it says, humble yourself. And when we're joined with Christ, we learn that Jesus is meek and lowly of heart in Matthew 11. We often talk about humility. As an admission of something that we don't possess. But to walk with Jesus and in Jesus is to have it without knowing it. You know, we see the best in others. And we see the worst in ourselves. But self-contemplation often leads to self-congratulation, which is always the path of pride. And we're told by Jesus to believe in him, to abide in him, to follow him, to model him. You know, I heard the story of a little girl who asked her mother if one could feel the soul or see the soul or hear the soul. Is, it, is there some way to touch it or taste it or reach out to it? And the mother replied, no, the soul cannot be felt or heard, but sometimes you can see it in the eyes. And the little girl asked her mother, Mom, let me look in your eyes. And of course... When she looked in her mother's eyes, she saw her own reflection. And she said, oh, mother, you have the soul of a little girl. And you must become as a child. Let your father take your hand. He'll give you grace to understand. And you'll come to know his plan of love and life. Entrance into the kingdom. Make sure you are going in the right direction. Advice once you get there. Serve. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we are so grateful Lord, sometimes we find ourselves going down the wrong trail. Somehow, Lord, we've gotten turned around. And Lord, we pray that you would turn us back around. Lord, we pray that we can head in the direction that's marked love and grace and mercy and humility and Lord, when we see the signs that are marked self and selfishness, that Lord, we know that we're, we're headed in the wrong direction. And so Lord, I pray for each and every person here. Lord, I pray that you will strengthen us. That Lord, if we truly want to be great in God's kingdom, that we will as the song says, learn to be the servant of all. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.